0: It's really hard not to get excited after singing a song like that, excited to celebrate Christmas, excited about all of the richness, theological depth of of Advent and Christmas. What a reminder to us of God's plan of redemption that has been unfolding since the beginning. Um, I remember hearing a testimony when we were living in Scotland of a guy who'd come forward to be baptized and he gave a test, his testimony in our church there. And he shared how when he was younger, as a college student, he was an unbeliever when he started college. And how he kind of grew up around, obviously, living in, in the West. You kind of grow up around Christmas carols. You grow up around these songs. And he talked about how it was uh, this, at this particular time when the Lord changed his heart that Christmas came around shortly thereafter, and it was like a whole new world opened up for him, where these songs of Christmas really began to mean something. They weren't just nostalgic. You know, there's a, there's a kind of nostalgia, I think, even for the unbeliever who's grown up in maybe this part of the, the world, who hears these Christmas songs and has this sort of warm and fuzzy uh, on the inside, you know. And what is that about? Well, it can just be pure nostalgia. You grew up hearing these as a kid. They bring you back to your childhood, they bring you back to lovely memories with cookies and hot chocolate or whatever else, presents. But then there is a way of hearing these songs where the the depth of the theology of Christmas just explodes on the front of your mind. And I think that's what happens for the believer. So let me just ask you, as you hear these songs coming up this Christmas, will the, the doctrines of of Christ, of the incarnation of God, will His redemptive work, will those things come into your mind and be present, something to meditate upon, or will they just be nostalgia? For a couple of months now, we've been looking at the life of this towering biblical figure named Abram. A little bit later, shortly, he'll be his name will be changed to Abraham, father of a multitude, but now we know him as Abram, so I've tried to refer to him as Abram until his name is for us, Abraham. But this is, this is the person we've been talking about for a while, not because we're in a series on Abraham, but we're in a series on Genesis. So if this is your first time with us. That's what we're doing. We're working our way, yes, all the way through Genesis. And we are coming up now. We, we have been now for some time in the portion of Genesis that deals with this figure, Abraham or Abram. Chapters 12 through 25, and that will go on to Isaac and then Jacob, which will carry us through to the end of the book. So one way to think about Genesis is, it's the message of Genesis is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the patriarchs, as they're called. Who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And that's uh, what we're learning as we go through these chapters. Last week, I did a little summary for you of what we've covered so far with Abram. And almost everything we've covered about Abram's actions has been positive or commendable. I think we would all agree on that. Abram has been a, just a, a, a great figure, it seems to us so far. The kind of figure that we would say to our children, hey, be like Abram. Mostly, as we've gone through this, he's a, he's a role model. He's exemplary. As a character, at least, almost, well, almost entirely. He is held up as the father of faith. He is like Noah in his immediate obedience. Remember Noah. Noah doesn't sit around and and think as to whether or not he's going to listen to God. He obeys immediately. God tells him to do something. He does it. Which is the desire we have as parents for all of our children. That they would obey in that way. But Noah does. He obeys as soon as God tells him he does it. And that is what we've seen From Abram. He is upright in his dealings with other people. We've seen that he has been generous towards Lot. He's been humble towards Melchizedek, and he has been bold towards the king of Sodom. We've seen faith. We've seen obedience. We've seen this lofty character of this man, Abram. And then to kind of top it all off, we get this wonderful passage, this wonderful verse, last week in chapter chapter 15, verse 6, where we saw a very explicit reference to Abram's faith. So 15, 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in God's sight, Abram has faith, and on account of that faith, is reckoned by God as righteous. When God sees Abram, he sees righteous man, blameless in God's sight. But not everything has been so positive. You will remember at the end of chapter 12, we saw Abram's stumbling. What happened in that passage? Well, there's a famine in the land. He goes south into Egypt. And on his way to Egypt, his thought pops into his head where he says, you know what, my wife's really beautiful. When we get into Egypt, the Egyptians are going to see how beautiful my wife is. They're going to desire her. They're going to kill me and take my wife and it's all going to be gone. So Abram decides that he will lie and say that she is his sister and he's reckless with her because she ends up getting taken uh, by Pharaoh and brought into his house and almost adultery happens. It seems from the text that it doesn't happen, but it almost happens. And so Abram is depicted as being deceptive and reckless. But all of this is shown to be flowing out of his independence, as we talked about. Abram is doing his own thing. He's doing what he wants to do. He's, he's, he's coming up with his own ideas, his own calculations for how it is that he'll take care of self. How it is that he'll make sure his future is secure. And so the picture we got at the end of chapter 12 of Genesis is one of feeble faith. Yes, Abram has largely been depicted as a, a wonderful character, a commendable character, a very positive character, but we see already there in chapter 12 that this is not entirely the case. Well, today we get to return to Abram's feeble faith. We come to a very similar And I would say far more momentous event in the life of Abram. Not a positive event. This is a stain. A big stain on the story of Abram. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today. The story of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. Genesis chapter 16. As we prepare to read this chapter, we need to remember that an heir or a future offspring for Abram is the key component to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Think about that for a moment. God has come to this man Abram and has made these promises to him. And everything hinges on God an offspring. Everything hinges on Abram having a child. So we saw God promise Abram that he would be a great nation. You're not going to be a great nation unless you have offspring who can populate a nation. We saw God telling Abram that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, Even in the most optimistic estimation, if, Abram ha- if he- even if Abram could live to sort of the, the- pre-flood lifespan, he's not going to be able in that amount of time to be a blessing to everyone in the whole world himself. So that implies that there is going to be offspring who will go on to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So from the very beginning of these promises, we see that everything hinges on offspring. And in fact, God will explicitly say this, that all of this can only come through offspring who will be innumerable, as innumerable as, God says, as the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. So twice we get these pictures of how innumerable Abraham's offspring are going to be. They're going to be, he can look down at the ground as he's walking during the day and he sees all these little bits of dirt and it's going to be more than the dust. going to be like that and it's going to be like the stars at night as he looks into the heavens. In other words, whether Abram is beat down looking at the earth or whether he is, as we so often do or are, looking up into the sky, feeling a little bit overwhelmed with life. he's reminded everywhere he looks of God's promises of offspring. The promise of offspring is so significant that the delay in its fulfillment leads Abram to the fearful question and proposal that we saw last week. So let me get you to go back to chapter 15 really quickly. This promise of offspring so significant that it leads Abram to a sort of fearful state and to ask these questions that he asks here, at least this first one here in verses 1 to 3. So let me read you again, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. So Abram is afraid. His heart's shaky. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, you've just given up all this reward from the king of Sodom, but don't worry, that's nothing, because I'm going to reward you massively. Then he says, Abram says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. I still don't have a child, God. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, oh, behold, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. I, I don't have an offspring from you. God. I, okay, this guy, can ha- this guy will do it. He'll stand in the place of an offspring from me. And, and that'll be the way you fulfill your promises. That's Abram's proposal. So Abram, looking at these promises on the human level, thinks that maybe God will bring about this heir through adoption. After all, he and Sarah are quite old and Sarah Sarai is barren. So this is a very logical, very sort of human way of thinking. He says, I'll just adopt this guy in my household and you'll bring about all these promises through this adopted son. But I want you to catch something very important. Up to chapter 15, now listen closely to this. God has given Abram no reason whatsoever to believe that his heir will be anything other than a natural, biological son, a child born to him, and his wife Sarai. God has given Abram no indication that any kind of funny business is going on with regard to his offspring. The only reason Abram would see this happening any other way is because his mind is getting stuck on the human level. Abram is not seeing what is possible with God. You know, this is a theme throughout the Bible. We find many verses that talk about how human beings tend to limit God. Tend to think only in terms of what is possible on the human level. This is Abram in chapter 15. We're going to see this is what's going on in chapter 16 today. But tend to think just no higher than the ceiling. We live like naturalists. Naturalists believe what you can sense, what you can test scientifically is all that there is. There is no super above the natural. There's no supernatural. There's no God no spirit world, no angels, no demons, that these things simply do not exist. And oftentimes, even the people of God, though not subscribing to this naturalistic worldview, nonetheless live naturalistically, nonetheless live as though they believe in naturalism. Can't see any higher than the ceiling. So we get verses in the Bible for God is faithful to remind His people this is not the case, or this ought not to be the case. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me. Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. Luke chapter 1, verses 30, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. We find language like this all throughout the Bible. And so I just want to stop here for a moment before we go any further and just say, maybe you need to hear this message again this morning. Maybe you need this message Uh, kind of drilled into your mind. I don't know what the Lord is doing in your specific life. I don't know what's going on with you, but maybe this is a big part of your thinking is that for you, things are impossible. Things are even impossible with God. You see no higher than the ceiling. Whatever trouble it is you're facing in your life, whatever things, whatever circumstances, they are just so heavy that nothing really can happen. There is no hope. I would not assume that that is not the case for some of you this morning. Even hopelessness. And for the Christian, hopelessness is is simply out of the question. Because we have a God for whom nothing, nothing is impossible. So maybe this is just something this morning that you need meditate upon. It was certainly something that Abram and Sarah needed to meditate upon. Okay. So anyway, going back to Abram. So he, he asked God these questions about this adopted one in his house and God simply says to him, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. That's not my plan. He says, your offspring will come from your own body. But this still leaves one remaining question for this human level way of thinking. Think about it for a second. You've just received this message from the Lord. You're Abram and you're told your seed is going to come from your own body. Okay, but that raises another question. Will this offspring necessarily come from Sarai's body? So here you see this human way of thinking. No higher than the ceiling. Natural Later, God will make it clear that this is the case. Genesis eighteen fourteen. In fact, he says, This is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. Now, God hasn't told him that yet explicitly. But God has given Abram no reason to believe that he's going to do anything other than give him and his wife a son. But the question still lingers. For now, as we enter into chapter 16, Abram and Sarai must continue to wait in faith, looking beyond the human level. But unfortunately, that's not what we see in Genesis chapter 16. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, it gives us a little bit of some timeline information there as to how long it's been. We haven't gotten that up to this point. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Verse 4, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord. We haven't met this character yet. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing To your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Birlahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered and Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And I want to just go ahead and read this to you because we're going to see how much of a jump there is after this narrative. Chapter 17, verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, that's the next story. So 86 to 99, that's where we will pick up, that's where where we'll pick up after this passage. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go ahead and pray to the Lord and just ask that God would make us attentive this morning to His Word, that He would make our minds and our ears attentive, and that He would also make our hearts attentive as we receive humbly before God under His Word, as we receive His Word and ask Him to change us into the likeness of His Son. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for our opportunity to gather and to sing praises to your name, to confess our faith, to pray to you corporately. What a wonderful thing, God, that right now we are praying to you as a body. Father, you hear our prayers. You hear our prayers when we're alone and you hear our prayers when we're gathered. And what a special thing it is to call upon The name of the Lord. And we do, Father. We call upon your holy name through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning you would show us your glory. That you would show us the glory of your plan. The glory of your Son. That you would use your word to grow us in the Christian life. To show us our sin and to encourage us in gospel living. Father, I pray that you this morning would draw unbelievers to yourself. Father, I pray that those here this morning who may not be believers would recognize that even the demons believe, as James tells us, to say we are mere believers, that we simply believe in a God, even if it's the God of the Bible, is not the same thing as to trust you, Father, to live unto You, to walk with You, to cast aside all works righteousness and throw ourselves entirely upon Christ for our salvation, to turn from our wicked ways of living and thinking and feeling and to to trust Jesus and repent and be trained in righteousness and holiness of life. Father, our prayer this morning is that You would Direct those individuals to true conversion. That you would show us the state of our hearts. That you would expose our hearts. As the psalmists often pray. That you would show us. Search our hearts, oh God. All of our hearts. We pray for our children in the back. Uh, Lord, we ask for salvation. We ask that you would continue to grow them in healthy ways. God, would you be merciful to us as parents. We recognize our our weakness, our frailty, our imperfection as parents. And Father, we just pray that your perfection would be supreme over our weakness. God, we entrust this time both for our kids and here in this room to you, and we ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Offspring for Abram? Question mark you got to get that. That's important. If you just read that part, you'll be like, huh? Uh, Yes, we have an offspring for Abram in one sense. A child indeed is born to Abram. Yes, in one sense. But is this the promised heir? The one God has been talking about all along? The one we've been waiting for? Emphatically, no, not the case. So offspring for Abram, question mark? Yes, in a sense. No, in a sense. And the three uh, things that I want you to see as we go through this chapter, you'll see there in your bulletin, we have the plan concocted, the problem created, and then the provider confessed. And this last point, the provider confessed, is something that we're going to cover next time when we come to this passage. We're not going to be able to get there today. There's a lot there with Ishmael and what God is doing with Hagar, and of course this figure, the angel of the Lord. So we're going to hold off on that and come to that next time we return to this passage. So what I want to do at this juncture is give you a little sense for where we're going to be going in the next couple of months. You might be wondering that with Christmas coming up, with Advent coming up. So I just want to go ahead and, and let you know what's, uh, what's going to be happening. So next week I will be at a conference and Mark Grasso, one of our elders, will be preaching. He's going to be preaching on Psalm 51, and we're going to see once again in Psalm 51 uh, a reminder of human weakness, stumbling, and feebleness. So just like we're seeing that with Abram, we're going to get to see that with David next week. We're going to continue to see how the people of God stumble and how God remains faithful. So that will be Next week, and then after that, we'll come back to this passage and we'll cover the latter half of chapter 16, verses 7 to 16. Today, we're only going to cover verses 1 to 6. Uh, When we return to chapter 16, we'll finish the chapter, and then we will break from Genesis for Advent. And what we're going to be doing in the month of December is going through John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So for some of you who are a little Old Testament weary... Maybe, I don't know, Old Testament's wonderful, but maybe you, uh, you want to just get to uh, some explicit New Testament, uh, Christ right there in your face, although I still think Christ is in your face in Genesis, but uh, this will be an opportunity for us to anticipate Christmas, to anticipate our celebrating the, the coming of the Lord. Uh, so we have in that wonderful passage in John 1, 1 to 18, in the beginning was the word, and, and of course that climax is there. Uh, towards the end of that section, with and the word became flesh. It's interesting because as we come to Christmas, there's sort of two ways to think about Christmas. They come together, they converge. But one of the ways we think about it is very much in terms of the stories of Christmas, the nativity narratives. Uh, we have the, the birth narratives that Luke and Matthew give us. We think of shepherds. We think of wise men. Uh, we think of the Annunciation to to uh, Mary, and and what's going on with Mary and Elizabeth and. And Joseph's dreams and Herod and all of that. We, that's kind of what we think about. But really what John 1, 1 to 18 does is it sort of takes back the veil and shows us what is happening more theologically at Christmas. When, when God becomes man, not that Matthew and Luke aren't giving us theology, they certainly are. But they're giving it to us in in the narrative, a birth narrative form. What John wants to do is he wants to peel back that veil and show us all that is happening in Christmas. And so that's what we'll be doing throughout the month of December. We'll come back to Genesis chapter 17, where we get this 13-year jump, really. Uh, At the beginning of uh, chapter 17, we'll come back to that in the new year. So I just thought it was maybe helpful to give you a little itinerary. For where we're headed in the coming months. So today we're still Genesis 16. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning in these first six verses is the plan concocted. So look with me again verses 1 to 3. The plan concocted. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar... And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. It is difficult to know as you come to this story, exactly what is going on in Sarai's mind at this stage? We don't have too much insight into the inner workings of her mind. How is she feeling over these chapters? How, what is she thinking as Abram comes into? You can imagine him coming into the tent saying, The Lord spoke to me again last night. He's so happy. He's so elated. And Sarai Her barrenness hanging on her neck like a heavy burden. Who knows what she's been feeling, what she's been thinking. We know that she is commended as a woman of faith in the Bible. Make no mistake about it. Sarai trusts in the Lord God. We are not to see her in any other way. 1 Peter chapter 3, opening verses, makes that very clear. She is a model for women, model for wives. She is a commendable character. She trusts in God. We know that she trusted in God's promises. And here in verse 2, she calls God Lord. She refers to Him as Yahweh, Lord, twice in this narrative. And she recognizes that He is sovereign over the womb. Now you do get a hint of a little bit of frustration there. A little bit of accusation against God. As she says uh, in in verse 2. That the Lord basically has closed her womb. But she at least recognizes I think in that. That that God is in control. If she is barren. It is still part of the sovereignty of God. God has, has not left his throne in her barrenness. So she does recognize that. But. Like Abram in chapter 12, she figures that God needs a little human ingenuity to bring about his plan. So she concocts a plan of her own. You know, God has an end, and this is the thinking, the ceiling high thinking, the human level thinking, is that we're really the ones who construct the means, right? God just lays it out there for us. But we've got to figure out how to get there ourselves. We've got to make it happen ourselves. If anyone's going to build the stepping stones to the end that God has for us, it's going to be us. That's the kind of thinking we see here with Sarai's concocted plan. From her time in Egypt, she had acquired a servant named Hagar. And now she comes up with a plan to give her servant to her husband, so that she can bear children on Sarai's behalf. Now, to the modern reader, this is preposterous. This is ludicrous. This is so weird. We would say Jerry Springer. And for some people, maybe since, who are a lot younger, they would know what in the world that is. But when I was a teenager or whatever, now 20 plus years ago, it's crazy. Um, There was a show called Jerry Springer. I probably shouldn't even mention it in a sermon. So ridiculous, but it was just a catchword for craziness, for domestic craziness. Anything that was just domestically crazy was Jerry Springerish. And that's exactly what we think when we come to this passage. This is so weird and so strange. And it certainly has no place in a story of God's workings among his covenant people. So. Odd. So what is going on here? Well, I think, I think if we look at it in its context, some of the weirdness gets sliced off a little bit, and that's important for us to really see it for what it is. But let me give you a quote here from Kent Hughes, which I think is helpful. He says, while we are scandalized by Sarai's polygamous solution, and I think we are, It was perfectly logical and acceptable in the culture from which she had come as well as in the culture that surrounded her from Babylon to Egypt. As weird as it may seem to 21st century ears, this is the way they did things back then in that culture all the way from Mesopotamia through Canaan into Egypt. This was quite normal practice for these things to go on. So it sounds strange to us, but this was a common and acceptable practice for Sarai to embrace. A perfectly viable option. If you don't have the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth as your God. Sure, why not? So what's the problem with this? To us, we would say, well, it's obvious, but let's look at it. Let's dissect it. What, what is going on here? What is the problem with all of this? How does God want us to view this story that we find here? What, what kind of judgment does God want us to put on the, the actions that we find here of Abram and Sarai? Well, first, there is no seeking God. So we got we to get that across first. This is independence, just like with Abram in chapter 12. It is self-reliance. It is coming up with a plan in your own mind apart from God. And we know what that feels like, right? We do that more frequently than we would probably be able to confess even this morning if we thought about it. Second, we know that it is contrary to God's will for marriage. We've seen God's will for marriage described in Genesis chapter 2. What does it say? Chapter 2 verse 24. If you've been to a wedding recently, you probably have heard this quoted. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, wife, and they shall become one flesh. What is God's will for marriage is very clear should not be confusing to anyone who's trying to uphold a biblical worldview in the in the context of our cultural craziness. One man one woman for life. That's marriage. That's always been God's intention for marriage. Anything that is contrary to that is contrary to the revealed will of God. One man, one woman for life. So that's the second problem is that the marriage issue here. Third, the interaction between Sarai and Abram is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3. How is that? Well, The writer has carefully constructed this narrative and dialogue so as to remind us of Genesis 3. And there's one particular phrase that tells us that's what's going on. In chapter 16, verse 2, it says this. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. We've been there before. Reminds us of chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said... After the fall, what did God say to Adam? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. In other words, like Adam, Abram is passive. He's not leading. He's not treasuring his bride. He should have said, oh, Sarai, no, I can't do this to you. God will show us what we must do. We must trust his promises. I cannot do this to you. You are my bride. You are my treasure. It's not what he does. He does not lead. He simply listens. And by the way, I'm not not advocating. I probably should say this because someone will take this home today and do something silly with it. This is not saying... uh, you know, that you don't listen to your wife, obviously. Anyone who's been a husband for more than two hours knows that 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 is a poor choice. So that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in this situation, his wife's word trumps what he should know to be right, what he should know to be appropriate, morally righteous and acceptable, a life of faith. He he just simply lives. He's passive. Okay, whatever. Let's do it. And I think here what we have is a warning. A warning to husbands. To lead and to cherish. And this is, this is simply what we find when we come to that mountain peak passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. To, to lead and to cherish. To cherish in that we lay down our lives for our wives. We see them as treasures and precious. And to lead them. Not to uh, just passively give over our leadership to them. Even if they have a type A personality and you don't. God has ordained that men should lead in the home. And when men are passive, everything falls apart. Hear that, husbands. When men are passive fathers and passive husbands, the family crumbles. I think we should take note of that. Fourth, Hagar is viewed as nothing more than a tool. Do you see that? The Christian would uh, would understand this. The Christian would understand that even in that culture, the believer in that time would understand that here, even though it's practiced all throughout the ancient world, the, the, the believer in God, the one who who knows who God is, who knows God, who walks with God, would recognize or should recognize that this is entirely unacceptable. Hagar is viewed as nothing more than a tool to make babies. She's treated as nothing, despite the fact that God has revealed clearly that man was made in his image. Hagar is an image bearer of God. And in this passage, she is treated much like the people in the world in that day would have treated their servants, their slaves, like mere property, like nothing. And that's what we find here. Ultimately, the big problem here is what Paul quickly says in Galatians 4.23, which Craig read earlier, which tells us that what happens in Genesis 16, what we're reading here, this story, the events that we're encountering here are according to the flesh, not through the promise. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 4. What's happening here is according to the flesh. It's not in accordance with God's promises. And what I think this tells us, we need to hear this, Christian, hear this. As believers, every day, hour by hour, we choose, we choose, we choose to walk either According to the flesh or according to the promise. We choose either to trust or to totter. To be influenced by the world around us or to be singularly focused on the word of God. We choose to chart our own course or to seek and wait on God. So here's the question. Christian, are you doing your own thing? Thing. A Christian can do his or her own thing. Are you doing that? We know that Abram and Sarai were believers. There. That's not in question at all. That's one of the reasons that what we've just read in chapter 15 about Abram's faith is so emphatic. And I, I think possibly the reason it's placed there in the narrative, because we know Abram has believed all along, but now we get it mentioned in chapter 15, verse 6, and then we get this crazy story. And I think it's meant to tell us, look, we should not question the fact that they are believers, but we should recognize that even as believers, we can go and do our own thing. Well, Sarai and Abram were doing their own thing, and this created a web of problems. And that gets to our second point, which we'll finish up with today, and that is the problem created. So go with me to verses four to six. We have the plan concocted, and now we come to the problem created. Verses 4 to 6. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. She is not happy. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. If there is one word that could be used to encapsulate these verses, it would be the very colloquial expression, this is a mess. This is... A mess all the way around when we come to chapter 16. There really is no other way to describe it. It's a a web of craziness. It is a mess. The first thing we notice is that every relationship, you got to see this, every relationship mentioned here is negatively affected by Abram and Sarai's actions. If Abram was a peacemaker with Lot, hear this, we held Abram up just recently As a peacemaking character. If he was a peacemaker with Lot. Here he is a destroyer of the peace. There is no peace in these verses to be found. Hagar begins to dishonor her mistress Sarai. In her pride over having conceived a son from Abram. Something Sarai had been unable to do. Hagar shows an utter disregard and contempt for this woman who is over her. And you can imagine this is understandable. I mean, Abram and Sarah have opened up something horrible in terms of these, these circumstances. I mean, in some ways, Hagar is being provoked to this. She's responsible for this, yes, but she's also being provoked to this. I mean, can you imagine? She's a servant, she's a slave. She's been handed over to Abram, and now she has conceived a child. She's still under her mistress, but she's bare, she has the son of Abram, the one. To whom the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth has appeared and said, you're my special one. She has his son in her womb. I mean, it's quite natural that she would start to look over at Sarai and get a little bit contemptuous. Why am I your slave? Why am I your servant? I have the son of Abram in my body. Or the child at this point, she doesn't know it's a son. The child of Abram in my body. She's still responsible for this pride and this contempt, but it is nonetheless a provoked response. This in turn creates tension between Abram and Sarai because Sarai blames Abram for all of this. And she just looks over at him and starts blaming him that he's the reason that all of this is happening to her. And of course, we know that it was her idea, so it's not fair for her to look over at Abram and blame him. Yet, at the same time, Abram, is he's embracing this. I mean, this is, this is he's fully embraced this plan. He's passively submitted to it. Sarai's now realizing this didn't work out so well, and it just is what it is. Abram has been passive and let it happen, and so she's angry with him. She blames him. This then pushes Abram to show a total disregard for the mother of his child as he basically tosses Hagar back to Sarai like a ball. Tosses her back to Sarai, essentially saying, do whatever you wish with her then, Sarai. Do whatever you wish with her. Every single human connection in this narrative is shattered, broken. This is really tragic when you dissect it. In this way. Then, not done. Then Sarai takes her frustration and vengeance out on Hagar and deals harshly with her. We don't know what that means, but you can only imagine all that frustration that Sarai felt, all that shame she felt over you have Abram's child in your womb, and I can't give Abram, my husband, a child. She hated her, probably. We know what that feels like moments of envy and pride and shame. Hagar, in turn, rebelliously runs away with Abram's child in her womb. She's gone. And when you get to the beginning of verse seven, we see that she is on her way to Egypt. She's going back home. She's going back to where she came from. Back when Abram and Sarai went down into Egypt and they came out, she's going back to the place she is from. This is a mess. This is a mess. And as we'll see when we come to verses 7 to 16 in a couple of weeks, this act on the part of Abram will create. Listen to this. This is amazing. This is amazing. This act, this moment in time. If you could go back there and you could see this happening. The moment Sarai thinks of this plan, she communicates it to Abram. Abram accepts the plan. Abram lies with Hagar. All of this will create thousands of years of tension, conflict, and war between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. Wow. Not just a lack of peace. The peacemaker, Abram the peacemaker, doesn't just destroy domestic peace, he sets in motion years and years. Of conflict. Kent Hughes. Whom I quoted just a a little bit ago. Goes on to say this. Little did Abram and Sarai imagine. That their shortcut. Would originate a conflict. That would run for millennia. And that oceans of blood. Would be spilled. How tragic. Was Abram's. Expediency. So what does this tell us? This weird story that we read and we think, man, I don't know what to do with this. Well, first, let's affirm a few important things as we think through this for us, as it bears on us, bears on our lives. As we finish up this morning, as this story bears on our lives, we need to affirm a few very important theological truths that we hold to as Christians. First, God is sovereign. We believe that. He is sovereign over everything that happens in this world. We affirm it. We affirm that he turns things for good in our lives. Even things like this. Wow, what grace. How many times have you fallen on your face? You know, it's one of the most important responses of the Christian who fails. The mom who fails. The father who fails. Husband, wife, friend, church member, whatever it is that we can pray to God and we can say, Father, I've sinned. I've been stupid. I've been foolish. But I pray that you will smooth over the negative effect of this and I pray you will turn it for good and protect it from the evil one. And what an amazing thing that we can trust that God will do that. We affirm that. God is sovereign. And he turns even our most ridiculous mistakes into good. That's the kind of, God he is. We affirm that he protects us from falling away. That he preserves our faith until the end. But, 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 we can, we are reminded here, quite frankly, make a mess of our lives if we're not careful. Here's what I mean. Some of us have a theological perversion going on in our minds, and it's this: We come to the doctrine of God's sovereignty in such a careless way, so as to think that we are quite free to just be foolish and to fall on our faces and to perpetuate habitual sin, to say what we wish and do what we wish. and it's okay. God's in control. God is sovereign. He's going to turn it for good. That is a foolish theology. If that's your theology, you haven't even begun to understand the depths and riches of true reformed theology, which focuses both on a glorious sovereign God who is king over every speck of dust in the universe and a God who demands that his people be holy and be vigilant and fight the devil And not grow wearisome and tired. Lest they be swept away. We have a God who tells us in his word. That he is sovereign. And we have a God who tells us in his word. Make right choices. Make right choices. If your theology does not accommodate both of those at the same time. Then it is not healthy doctrine. It is not sound words as the apostles refer to let me say it again we can make a mess of our lives if we're not careful and abram and sarah remind us of that yes god's in control yes he's going to see them through to the end yes he's going to bring about his promises yes he's going to preserve them and protect them yes they will die faithfully and abram will die in peace just as god already promised to him unilaterally unconditionally these promises stand because god stands yet see the damage That is done in his home and his life. And for decades, centuries, and millennia to come. Our choices matter. Do you really believe that? You believe that? What do you choose, moment by moment, to do with your life? Are you making flippant choices apart from faith, apart from God's word? Are you toying with sin this morning? Just... Throwing it up to, hey, God is sovereign. It'll be okay in the end. Thinking it will be okay because you belong to God. Let me say this. Satan is happy to make a mess of your life. And he will. He will ravage your life, your marriage, your relationship with your children, your finances, your health, your career. He will do all kinds of damage in your life. Don't think for a moment that your choices don't matter because of God's sovereignty. That's a foolish way of thinking, out of line with all that we read in Scripture. Satan is happy to render you a poor reflection of Christ, to dismantle your spiritual armor, to make you practically useless for kingdom work, to use you to tear other people down rather than to build them up, So here's the question Are you taking your choices, your human will? Are you taking your choices seriously, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, as a person made in the image of God with a will, with a deliberative power in your being to say, Yes, God, no sin. Yes, wisdom, no folly. Yes, right, no wrong. As we finish up this morning, as we prepare to hear from Mark on Psalm 51 next week, I want you to consider that these sorts of passages remind us of one all-important reality, and that is the need for a Savior. When we come to Genesis 16, the the big takeaway that we need to get is, man, Abram needed a Savior. Sarai needed a Savior. And when you read of David, what David did was horrible. In fact, I don't even personally know someone who has done something as bad as what David did in the Bible. A man after God's own heart. The one who killed Goliath in faith. As a teenage boy, I trust in the Lord. I'll kill this giant. The king of Israel. What he did was horrible. And Mark will get into that next week. David needed a savior. Abram needed a savior. You need a savior. I need a savior. Abram and David were children of Adam. They could not live perfectly. They needed a savior. And the same is true of all of us. We must be saved by Christ's righteousness imputed to our account by faith alone. That's the only way any of us will be in heaven a century from now, I assume no one will be alive a century from now in this room. There will still be leaves on the trees. There will still be birds chirping. The world will go on and we'll all be in the ground. Will your soul be with God a century from now? Where will you be? The only way you will be with God is if you have Christ as your Savior. That's it. I want to leave with this quote from Paul, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's look to Christ. Let's live in his strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for our father and mother, Abram and Sarai, the father and mother of faith here in Scripture. Oh God, how we see them as a mirror of our own straying hearts. Our own self-reliance and independence. Our own carelessness with regard to our relationships and treatment of other human beings. Our own ceiling high thinking. Naturalism, functionally speaking. Father, we pray for forgiveness. We ask that you would purify our hearts and our hands We pray that we would take our wills seriously. That we would not lose sight of the great mandate that you have put on our human wills in this life. That we must daily choose. Will we follow you or will we falter? And God we pray. Even though we know we will falter. In many ways we pray that daily we will choose to follow Christ. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.